We're in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 is our text. An elaborate gift and a pretend perspective. So we'll jump into John chapter 12, verse 1. We will also look into Luke a little bit as well. John chapter 12, verse 1 begins, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's important. It's important to remember what we talked about last week. The verse that you memorized. You memorized the chapter and the verse, probably before you got here. But in John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. I told you that it is the shortest verse in the English Bible, and that it was not the shortest verse in the Bible. And that's based on the number of words. I gave you a clue. We talked about it when we were going through our pastoral epistles. And I'm, I'm sorry, the prison epistles. So you'll see after Jesus wept shows up, you'll see John 11.35 has three words in the Greek, and 1 Thessalonians 5.17 has two words in the Greek. That's the one that says pray without ceasing or pray continually. So that's the shorter verse in the Bible if you go by numbers of words. And the reason why I bring it up again is because we need to remember the why. Jesus wept because he cares when we're going through whatever we're going through, even if it doesn't make sense, even if he knows and we know that he's got this. Even when we're stressing, we might be crying, we might be staring out the window, wondering a lot. (laughs) Might be lying in our bed at night trying to figure out what And if it doesn't make sense, even if it's unreasonable that we are confused or discouraged, Jesus hurts when we hurt. And that's the whole big reason why there's Jesus wept in the middle of John 11. The good news is today we're not covering a whole chapter like we have a couple of times. So we move to verse 2 in John chapter 12 after we learn that Lazarus is there with them. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but most of the time when we read this, we don't say at table. It's kind of like when we read the Christmas story. We, a lot of times people say he was in swaddling, wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, it's cloths. But we, oftentimes we say swaddling clothes. It's cloths. And this doesn't say at the table. It says at table. There is no definite article in the original, which is interesting. But let me give you the, a literal translation, word for word in the Greek. It actually says, those ones together up lying to him at table. Wow, there's a reason why we don't do literal translations. We, it's just not very fluid. Those ones together up lying to him at table. Oh my goodness. Let's say that five times real fast. Let me show you what it might look like. Here is a table with people reclining, is what uh, some translations say. But really, it's they're leaning, and that's the way they ate. 
That's where they gathered at the table. This particular painting shows Jesus with John right next to him because John, the author of this book, is the one that is known as the one who was regularly reclining up against Jesus. It was kind of a normal thing. It's a different time. It's a different world, really. But back then, uh, the eating at the table was even more intimate than it is for us today. And it was okay to be in other people's spaces. This is long before COVID. So, you know, you didn't have to stay six feet away when you're at the store. Uh, And while you're eating, you could be right up against somebody and eating. And it was kind of easier to do if you're leaning up against people, you support each other. This one doesn't really show it as much as it does John up against Jesus. But if you can imagine, they're at the table and... This time, Lazarus is the one that is up against Jesus. But also, while you've got this image in your head and you've seen the other paintings of the Last Supper, it was more than likely like this image you see here than it was what we typically see. I mean, most people don't all sit on one side of the table for a painting, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's not exactly a realistic painting. And there's whole theology built around what people see in that painting, there's people that like, try to claim that Jesus was married because that one right there looks like a woman in the painting. Like, it's a painting! <laughs> what are you doing? Anyway, so we'll move on to verse 6 in our text. Um, no, let's go to verse 3. That's better if we catch every verse, huh? I get excited and want to go ahead. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and ointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, that's an, it would be an interesting thing if this was a Bible study and we simply went around the room and read the different translations because there would be a varied hodgepodge of the way this is translated. It's, it's, a, it's a strange um, verse because you've got... Well, let's go ahead and give you the footnote. You'll see it pop up in the English Standard Version. The literal means it's a, it's a Roman pound. So that's, we just, it's translated pound for us to understand. But it's a, it's a good supply of this particular perfume. And you go through, I was going to do this for you and do all the Greek stuff, but it is way complicated because they're not transliteration. So you can't just take the Greek word and say it in English to come up with what they've translated. None of them do that. Essentially what it is, is it's a botanical mixture of, of essential oils that's typically filtered through a distilling process using water, and then it is aged anywhere between one and 10 years. In a nutshell, that's what we know. And uh, if you like rabbit trails, uh, get ready. If you don't, no apologies, but we're going on rabbit trails a little bit in just a moment. You will see. Um, so anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself like I just did. <laughs> but I want to go ahead and show you the uh, containers that are, were often used during this time to uh, age the perfume. The, and if you think about it, one year to 10 years would definitely create a value if it has to age that long. These are uh, camel skins, and the reason why they often use camel skins is because it, was, it allowed the chemical, it allowed the, the space inside to expand, because it will over time. It'll just, as it ferments, it starts to expand. It allows it to breathe, so the 
gases can come out, but it would actually contain the scent within. That's kind of special. Sometimes they would also use different woods, and you see like sandalwood, things like that, to help in the fermenting process and give it a woodsy smell, which a lot of people like. And this is probably what it looked like when, uh, or at least the, the amount would be something like this as, as Mary uh, did her thing. Now, I don't know... Um, yeah, we'll go ahead and go to the next verse, verse 4. But Judea, uh, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Huh? He's upset. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it. Let's do the math. Do you know what the average annual income in Washington State is? The way you find this out is you get on the ESD website. Their responsibility is to figure out what the average annual income for Washingtonians is so that they can determine what unemployment benefits they will get, what those checks will be. You have to look at what do the average people in Washington State earn so we can figure out how much these people who aren't working might need. So that's why they do this every year. So in 2021 because 2022 is not over. They can't figure out the average annual income for this year. They haven't seen the numbers. So you see the question up there, average income for Washington State should be coming up, I think. Oh, never mind, a denarius, a day's wage. I was ahead of him. Um, is $82,508. It might surprise you, but Washington State, it's expensive to live here. So that's the average of course, you understand they're factoring in a bunch of Microsoft employees that uh, make uh, quite a bit. But eight, let's take 82,508, look at the numbers, it'll pop up next. Divided by 52, that's weeks. Divided by five, that's days per week. That ends up being $317.34 a day is the average that a person makes on a working day. Multiply that by 300 because of the tax. He said, why can't we sell this for 300 days wages? That equals $95,201.54. That's a little pricey when it comes to perfume. But the rabbit trails will begin. So here you go with a particular cologne. This is called Baccarat Rouge 540. It's my favorite. Um, that one... It's a mild scent and doesn't seem to cause people with allergies problems. And it's a, it's a mild scent in the sense that it, uh, it's not overwhelming to anybody, but it's a pleasant scent by both male or female, and that's why it is such a, a big hit. You can get it on Amazon right now for $641.89 if you want. Um, I am actually wearing some today. Don't touch me. But if you want to get close enough, I've sprayed it in my hair and you can smell it uh, after everything's over. Anyway, um, I say that don't touch me thing. The men know why. It's kind of funny. Uh, let's do the math on this one. You'll see. There it is. All up behind me. I've taken the cost. Well, I take the 128 um, ounces in a gallon, divided it by the 6.76 ounces in this perfume here, and multiply that by the price so that we come up with a gallon, and that's 
and $12,154. That's nowhere near as expensive. I mean, you look at $641.89 for a little thing of cologne or perfume, like, that's a lot. But it's nowhere near what Mary was using, comparatively. So let me show you something else. The rabbit trail continues. This one called Shemuk, and you're a schmuck if you buy it, I think, I don't know, but this is what this one costs. You'll see up behind me, $1,290,000 per ounce. Today, you can get yours. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. I think the place to get it is Dubai. I don't know if you know this, but most people there are making uh, six-figure incomes and, and way, way, way up. But that's expensive. That's more expensive than what Mary was using. Now, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, it doesn't say in the text that she used all of it. Um, so don't assume that she dumped it all. But Judas was concerned. Hey, whoa, 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 we can sell that. He's, he's concerned that she's using some of it at least. But he doesn't really care about the poor. He's more concerned about taking his share of what comes into the bounty that is their purse. He's a thief. Isn't that interesting? Now I want to show you uh, that John 12, 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now for a minute, I want you to look at a passage. This is out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. You can see it up behind me. It's in smaller print. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, there are a lot of people and a lot of Christians will just throw it out there. Money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. It's the love of money. It's not money that's evil. If money was evil, then the church would be full of evil every time we take any money or spend any money. It's not, money's not evil. But the love of it is the root of all kinds of evil. And I want to show you, and this has actually caused people to wander from the faith. That's important to note that. That's how dangerous it is to love money. Now, we need money, but you don't have to love money. And if you want some insight, we can back up just one verse, and you should actually be, read the whole chapter, but we'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I'm just giving you a couple of verses for clarity, and we haven't even mentioned greed. That's what this is. If you just get on Google and look up greed verses, you'll see a bunch of verses about greed, and greed leads to destruction. It always does. And this is what's motivating Judas, his own personal greed. Notice this. These verses up behind us, it's like this, you couldn't get it shouted more clearly. Loving money, wanting wealth so badly that it clouds your judgment, leads to destruction.
Now, I have a question. You'll see a question mark will pop up right behind me. There's a glaring question here because, you see, there was another disciple. If I were the one doing things, if, it was, if I was in Jesus' place and I've got 12 disciples and i got a thief who helps himself to the purse and I've got a tax collector who follows the rules, Matthew, he's, he's one of the 12. Why would I put Judas in charge of the bag of money? I wouldn't do that. He's a thief. And if you're Jesus, you know he's going to betray you. Why put him in charge of the money? He's going to steal it. You know he's going to steal it. So I would have messed it up, just like I would have messed up the whole Lazarus come forth thing. I would have messed up the praying thing. I would, I would have messed that up. I would have messed this up, because I would not have put Judas in charge of the money, knowing he's a thief. Mm-mm. So that's the question. Why did, why did Jesus do that? Why, why when you've got the 12 and you've got Matthew or Judas, hmm, which one should be in charge of the money? Doesn't it seem obvious? Matthew, that's the one. Jesus didn't do that. And he's very smart. Well, what are we missing here? I want to take you back to a, a subject that I shared with you before. And Anthony is far better at teaching this but he could explain more details to you, but cognitive behavioral therapy. Remember, it starts at the top with your thoughts. Then it goes to, you'll see it leads to, if you can correct your thoughts, it leads to corrected emotions. So if you think better, you feel better. Then if you feel better, if your emotions are better, then your behaviors are better. And then that leads to Better thoughts, because now you've validated the way you think. And then there's a servo thing. I'm not going to get into that piece where it actually all, they all bounce off of each other. But it starts with correcting the thinking. You correct the thinking, then you feel better. Then you behave better. So that's, the way, that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. If you have a married couple that are standing before a judge, and the judge says, you need parenting classes. They're going to get cognitive behavioral therapy. If you are dealing with an incarcerated individual that's told you need counseling, it will be cognitive behavioral therapy or some part of it or some rendition of it or some variant shooting off of it. It's going to be some kind of correct the thinking so that you can feel better and modify your actions. Okay. Why am I telling you this? Because I want to tell you on the flip side of this what this might look like. So we'll go to the next slide. You can barely see it. In need of cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you're in need of it, what that means is you start with, you can barely see it up behind me, bad thoughts. Bad thoughts necessarily lead to bad emotions. Bad emotions necessarily lead to bad behaviors. And bad behaviors perpetuate the bad thoughts. So if you've got incorrect thinking, you will have incorrect feeling. You won't feel right. You won't feel good. And if that's the case, then you won't behave right. Your actions will be wrong. And you might feel justified by it. because You might think, it's okay, it's fine. 
because your thinking is wrong and it just keeps going around and until you correct the thinking, you're in a vicious cycle. You need to repent. That's a New Testament teaching. Change your mind. You see repent come up behind me. So let's look at a better screen. The white one again, you'll see it come up. There it is, cognitive behavioral therapy. If it's working right, this is the way it looks. This gave you white because it looks cleaner, looks better, more holy, pure. Think about this. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that he was going to steal. Think about this. So his tendency is to be greedy, which clouds his judgment. We already know this in this story alone. It clouds his judgment. We already know from just a couple of scriptures we looked at that greedy thinking leads to one's own destruction, which is what happens to Judas. Is it possible that Jesus chose Judas over Matthew because he knew Judas is already thinking wrong and he's not desiring to correct it? So he's going to feel wrong about everything and he's going to behave wrong. He's the one that's going to betray me. Is it possible that he actually chose Judas knowing that he's, this is how he thinks, this is how he behaves, it's going to happen. He's, he's the one that needs to say in this moment, hey, 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 this shouldn't be happening. And Jesus gets to say, she's doing a good thing. Oh, he's so smart. I would have messed it up. He wouldn't have had that opportunity if I was the one saying, no, no, pick Matthew, don't pick Judas, because then it wouldn't have happened like this. But now he's given us a teaching because he is, he's thinking about the future. He's thinking about my future. He's thinking about how everything comes together. So when you have a situation and you might, you might be overlooked at work for a promotion, you, you did everything right. You, you've, you've checked all the boxes. You've, everything that you've done, your package looks so much better when it comes to the application than this other person they chose. It makes no sense. It could be that maybe, and you were praying and everything. like, God, why? Maybe he's got the big picture in mind. Maybe there's something going on, and he's got a plan for you, and he, he sees things that you don't see. Certainly with Judas, he's choosing to use him to ultimately bring glory and honor to God. I want to give you a passage out of Luke chapter 12. This is from the New Revised Standard Version, verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. That's important. Pay attention to that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how some people think about this in a little bit. But John chapter 12, verse 7, our text continues. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now I want you to pay careful attention to this verse. A lot of people miss this. She, he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Judas was wanting to sell what was left over, not what was used. Did you catch that? 
Huh. Interesting. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And some translations say, she's planning to keep it for the day of my burial. Interesting. And he validates what she's doing. Now let's look in Luke. Chapter 10. And we're going to look at three slides that have Luke passages. Verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Most scholars believe that this passage in Luke parallels with the passage in John. So this is happening in the same time frame, whether it's before Lazarus has been raised back to life, whether it's before he died, um, it don't really know, but most think that it happened after he rose from the dead and he's in the house with them. So in a similar timeline, not a lot of time has passed in between um, when the occurrence happens in John chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 10. They're in the same timeline. So remember, we talked about this, we alluded to it last week. So Mary is absorbing from Jesus. Martha's absorbing too. She's listening, but Mary's more intently listening while Martha is serving. Martha's doing a good thing. She's serving. Now we'll read on verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. There's a lot of people that think like this. And it's frustrating. It is absolutely frustrating. I remember a time when we were raising funds for Christ and youth. It was the first time in Stephanie's hometown. And we had this fire truck, that we, the fire department came by also to support those kids that are raising money to go to this thing that nobody really knew about, that the youth minister, which me at the time, said, you got to go, it's really cool. Christ and youth, people were bringing their cars by. There, were elder, there was an elder there helping wash cars with the kids even. And the youth, or the preacher, the new preacher, his kids just got there. This is, they, were, they hadn't been to any really youth group anything. But here they were for this fundraiser. So they were there. And those parents, the preacher and his wife, were helping wash cars. But those two kids that I've grown to love, they're obviously adults now. Have their, one of them has their own kids. But they kept sitting down. Wash one car, sit down. Everybody else kept working. They just lazy kids, very lazy. So this young and naive youth minister finally had my fill of it. And I said, do you not see there's an elder washing cars? He's not going to be going on this trip. And there's your parents washing cars. They're not going on this trip. The fire department is here. They brought the fire truck. They are helping us wash the fire truck and paying us to wash their fire truck. And you're sitting down again and again. You, you don't get to go on this free ride to Christ and youth if you don't do your part. Don't be lazy. Get up and work. They never hated me for it, but it was disturbing. <clears throat> but none of those kids, none of the high school kids seemed to be bothered by those two that kept sitting down. They just kept working. They were happy, just kept working. I loved their attitudes. It didn't phase them. In life, there will be times 
when you are doing more than your fair share and you're continuing to do it over and over and over and over again and somebody else is just not doing it. And you'll get frustrated and you'll wanna go, hey, this is not fair. Well, life's not fair. And sometimes you don't even know what's going on. Sometimes the person who's choosing not to, whatever it is, might have a physical issue. Don't know. But it's slightly crossing over to the arrogant side. If you're doing a bunch of work and you expect everybody else to pick up or start, drop whatever they're doing and then do your thing. Don't, don't do that. Just, just serve the Lord. Keep serving the Lord. Don't expect everybody else to be just like you. Does that make sense? And this is what Martha's doing, and it's probably why Jesus says Mary's doing a good thing. It's not that he's endorsing laziness. It's that Mary's doing a better thing. So you go to verse 41 and verse 42 in the text in Luke chapter 10. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The reality is, he got on to Martha for being too uptight. Another way to say it, Martha, Martha, lighten up. There was no reason to stress. Jesus appreciated Mary more intently soaking things up. Okay, somebody, uh, I don't know if you know this, it's, it's trendy. You can, you can look it up, but becoming minimalists is trendy. Less and less. I have mixed thoughts about minimalist uh, stuff today, probably because I have my own flaws. But somebody posted this, and you'll see it up behind me, on the internet. It was a social media post. If you're not using the stuff in your home, get rid of it. You're not going to start using it by shoving it in a closet somewhere. So here's a response. Thanks for the advice. I just threw away several boxes full of a couple hundred years of family history, photos, irreplaceable jewelry, plus about 30,000 in gold, 200,000 in bonds, etc. I wasn't using. Ah, oh, now, now I feel better. Laugh out loud. How many times have you had somebody who is a minimalist say to you, why do you have all this stuff? And then they go into a full-on panic. My pipes are frozen. Do you have this special wrench? No, I threw it away when you told me to throw everything I wasn't using away, and I threw my tools away because they just sit there until I need them. Uh, the minimalist... Uh, stuff that you're hearing today is coming from very young people who enter life with very little, so they start off with minimal. And then they go visit their parents or their grandparents, and they go, oh my goodness, why do you have all this stuff? Well, they've lived a life, and they've accumulated. And every now and then, when the power goes out, you need that generator, but you might not use it for three or four years. You don't just throw it away because some young person says, you don't need this stuff. They didn't earn it. And they don't have a right to tell you 
to throw stuff away that you shouldn't have or that you have earned and bought. But on the flip side of that, sometimes we keep things that we don't need. And we should be self-evaluating and thinking, am I being greedy? See why I have mixed emotions on this subject. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Hmm. Problem is we tend to spend a lot of time pointing our fingers, criticizing other people, and not self-evaluating. Okay, so let's do the so what part of the message because we've been through our text. We've used a little bit of Luke. So let's go through the so what. Here are seven things, and I'm sure you can think of more as you read through the text again. First of all, you'll see it come up behind me. Giving our best for Christ's glory and honor is good. You can find many verses that tell us to do this. This is what Mary did and Jesus endorsed. Second, this also... They go together, actually. Being elaborate for Christ's glory and honor is good. Jesus endorsed it. That's very expensive perfume. $92,000? And you're going to dump it on his feet and wipe it with your hair? What is this? It seems too much. And the churches get criticized for doing too much. Stephanie and I enjoyed, as we went through uh, New York, we visiting a couple of cathedrals where... They're quite elaborate. Lots of money was spent on these things. And sometimes when you build a church building, it depends on who's in charge of making those decisions, sometimes you do as minimal as possible because you have a low budget. And then sometimes you do something rather elaborate and it costs a little extra because you want to bring glory and honor to God and Jesus endorses that. But you'll get criticized for it. If we do something elaborate, you'll get criticized for it. Just like Mary Got criticized for it. Third, <clears throat> wrong thinking leads to wrong feelings, wrong actions, and more wrong thinking. We see this in Judas. Four, sometimes the most criticized ones are right. Hmm. I don't know if you thought about this, but think just for a moment. Because some of you could relate to that whole thing when Judas was picked instead of Matthew. Some of you are thinking, you know what? There are times where I felt that. Like, why did they pick that person? Some of you could relate to that. Well, maybe you can relate to Mary in this. Think about it. So in, this, in the same time frame, you've got Judas criticizing Mary in front of everybody. And in the, in the same time frame, you've got Martha criticizing Mary in front of everybody. Both of them going to Jesus, would you get on to her? And both times, Mary defended her. But can you imagine, I'm sorry, Jesus defended Mary. Um, can you imagine being Mary in those moments? Like, why, why does everybody target me? Both times, she was doing the right thing. Right? And both times, she got undue criticism. So maybe you could relate. There will be times when you really believe that God is calling you to do this thing. And you know it's the right thing. Don't be surprised if you get critics. 
singling you out, pointing you out in front of everybody else, and trying to make it look like you did a bad thing when you did a good thing. Don't be surprised if it happens in a short time period, back to back, different critics. Mary did the right thing both times in her own home, criticized by guests. Well, and one was by her sister. Okay, five. Greed is bad and confuses those with it. If you've got greed, you are confused. Judas didn't even bat an eye. He's going down a very bad path, and his greed has clouded his judgment. Six, being overly critical of others is even worse when we're not examining ourselves, hypocrites. I said it that way because that's the way Jesus said it. That's the way Jesus talked. If you are too busy, too concerned with criticizing other people, but you don't take the time to self-evaluate, you're highlighting your hypocrisy. Who do you think you are to be evaluating this other person when you don't self-evaluate? You don't examine yourself, as Scripture teaches us. Seven. Ethics without God are inconsistent, unreliable, and destructive. Here's Judas. He thinks he's got the moral, he thinks he's got the moral high ground. Hey, hey we can... We can help poor people if we sell that instead of let her do what she's doing. He did not have the moral high ground. And there's a lot of people, they think they've get, they got ethics because they found it, uh, it's popular. They walked into a bookstore and they saw this book on this thing that we all should be doing. And so they're criticizing everybody else that's not doing it just like them. And they're unwilling to self-examine to see if they got issues, they need to be looking at rather than trying to point the finger at everybody else. I don't know how anybody thinks they can actually have good ethics when they eliminate the creator of the universe from the equation. It makes no sense. God has the best knowledge of ethics. So get it from here, not from some random feeling. Because if you're thinking wrong and you're feeling wrong, you'll be behaving wrong. Let's pray. God, help us when we need to repent. Thank you for giving us stories that we can relate to, history that teaches us. Thank you for reminding us that we need to self-evaluate more than we need to criticize others. And Lord, if we're struggling with greed, help us do better. May we focus on you and please you. In Jesus' name, amen.